Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. Oh, I can't tell you how good it feels to be here. I love this house and I love the people of this house. Um, I actually wanted to, to share something with you tonight on a couple of different um, stories that have unfolded in recent weeks, but also in recent months. And um, I find myself having conversations with either Muslim people who have had a Muslim belief or have had a Muslim belief or have had an encounter with God. And I constantly find myself um, blown away by what God can do and what he does. And um, I, I find for myself that this is perplexing. I had a conversation here a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks ago with somebody around a, a conversation that they had had with a Muslim, um, uh, a Muslim guy who was basically just selling a jet ski. And uh, he was selling the jet ski. And as a result of selling the jet ski, he was saying to the guy, look, I'm running late. I'll be there as soon as I can. Just had some stuff pop up. I'll be there as soon as I can. And so the, the young gentleman waiting for this Muslim guy to turn up, didn't know he was Muslim, but rocked up. And the guy's like, yeah, look, I'm really, really sorry. I'm late. I, um, I literally had to uh, go get some stuff sorted out. I, uh, we built a mosque and pretty much... It was built without permits, and so we went to move into it, and we can't move into it because we don't have permits, and so I'm trying to undo a whole pile of mess, and so we don't have anywhere to pray. We don't have anywhere to, to gather, and so this young guy just turns to him and says, oh, well, you know, like, why don't you just ask one of the churches down the road if you could use their building, and uh, he just said to them, look, the Muslim guy said, that would be great, except they use it two days a week. He said, but we need it five times a day, seven days a week to pray. Oh, man. When I heard this, it, it hit me in the heart. And then just, just on Thursday, I feel like God's doing a work in this space. But just on Thursday, I went to get some fuel at the petrol station between um, Barker's and Princess Road. You know that, that Shell petrol station? Anyone know it? Yep. I just pulled in there to get some fuel. And as I pulled in to the petrol station, there's a man on his knees on a mat in the car park of the petrol station. A Muslim man. And he's on the ground, face down, and he's simply on his mat like this. And as I sat and watched from my car before I went to fill up my car, I was like, God, forgive me for my lack of prayer. I don't want to live without your presence. And without acknowledging it, I got out of my car and I filled up my car and I watched him pack up and roll up his mat, put it into his trunk. And I thought to myself, God, number one, my heart breaks for him because he doesn't know yeah. Jesus. Yeah. He knows Jesus is a prophet, not Jesus is a savior. Yeah. 
But the other part of my heart broke because there was this sense of, God, I want your presence and I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to be hidden about it. I don't want to keep quiet about it. I want more of you. And he had this posture of prayer that made me envious when I thought about it again five times a day, seven days a week. I just had a conversation with someone today who said that they've just finished Ramadan, Ramadan, not Ramadan, Ramadan, not noodles, (laughs) Ramadan, Ramadan, there we go. And they just finished and he'd spent four days fasting, no food, just water, four days in the mosque, learning the ways of the Quran, learning from the new leader of that area and I started to feel like God what are we doing as your people when we've got our microwave prayers on the way to work in the car when we're like Sunday Christians and God forbid that we come out on a Wednesday night and do something you know like go to prayer power or go go to revival nights and my heart started to break because I felt like God started to speak to me about this. Now, some of you are sitting here going, you know what, Sheree, that sounds really religious. Five day, times a day, seven days a week. They open the church, and if they can't get to a church, they pull out on the side. When was the last time you pulled out on the side of the road, pulled up a cushion, hopped on your knees, and said a prayer to the Lord? Oh. And I feel like there's this invitation from God in this season to not just lean into the moments in church, not just lean into the moments of revival conference and revival nights and prayer power and prayer and healing, but there's an invitation to step into the holies of holies daily, multiple times a day. And the thing that God really started to focus my attention on as I read through the Word of God, which we're going to open up in a minute and you can turn there in a moment, But God started to speak to me about the posture of religion versus the posture of revival. Because God started to say to me that even though we've got Christian believers that come in on the Sunday, do their thing, come to church, and maybe even on a Wednesday, there is the reality that religion still exists in the church and it has for decades in history in through the word. There are religious practices and people that will fall into a space of religion versus revival. God doesn't want your religious behavior. He wants your affection. He wants your heart. He wants your prayers. And as I started to ponder on this and think about this, I was reading through 1 Samuel. And I want you to turn there. And while you're turning there, we're gonna, I want you to know that we're actually going to read a bit of Scripture today, and that may be challenging for some. But we're going to down some scripture oh man I'm going to start from chapter 1 verse 2 and we're talking about a young man named Elkna and it says that he had two wives the name of one was Hannah and the name of the other was Penna Penna had children but Hannah had no children 
So it's listed here basically as Hannah first because it appears that Hannah was not able to have children. Therefore, Elkanah decided it'd be a good idea to have another wife and have children. And so he married two. Uh, good. There's probably people here today thinking two, it's hard enough with one. Or maybe you're thinking you'd be lucky with two. Um, I don't know. But as I'm reading through this passage, I'm seeing there's this, there's this real heart connection between Elkanah and this desire to have children. And so he has two wives, one is Hannah, one is Penna. And it says that they used to go up year by year. Sorry, not used to. That's actually a wrong paraphrase in this actual translation. It says, now this man and his family, they go up year by year from the city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where there were two sons of Eli. Please take note. Eli is a priest. He has two sons. Interesting names, Hophni and Pinehaz is what I'm going to say. <laughs> Take note. The word says that they were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penna, his wife, and all of her sons and daughters. But Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Just in case you missed it, the Lord had closed her womb. The other woman liked to, to give a dig and throw it at her. Alkna had a lot more than he needed to handle back then, I'm telling you right now. So when it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Elkna, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart so sad? Am I not more than 10 sons? Mm, comfort, but no comfort. After they had eaten and drunken in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the beds, uh, not the bedside, the seat beside the doorpost. Wow. <laughs> Besides the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, whew, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. She asked for a son. She got specific. You got a 50-50 chance. But she got specific. And she said that she would give him to the Lord all the days of her life and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued to pray before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart and only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Let's just stop there for a minute. She wasn't like, yeah, I'm so sad. I'm like so I'm drunk. She was laid out in the presence of God on the steps, crying out to God. Yeah. 
See, the thing is that Eli came to the determination or the conclusion that she was drunk, not because she looked like a drunk, staggered person, but because the culture of the day in the temple was there was misbehaviour going on in the temple. And so it was a reflection of the culture of the day. And he mistakes her for a drunken woman. Let's go on. And it said, Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of a troubled spirit. I've neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. And do not regard your servant as worthless, as a worthless woman. For all I have, all along, I have been speaking out my great anxiety and vexation. And we've got a lot of people talking about anxiety, but vexation, it's a new one. Can you imagine her grief as she sits in the presence of God? And then Eli says to her, go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favour in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. They rose early the next morning and worshipped before the Lord. They went back to the house at Ramah and Elkanah, Knew Hannah, his wife. If you need to know what the word new is, ask your mum. <laughs> and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked of him from the Lord. See, this passage of scripture I am completely and utterly dumbfounded by the, the, the insights that are coming from it. Because we have this woman who is completely and utterly barren and it's clearly that it's her problem and not her husband's problem. Because he got another wife and she got sons and daughters. So the issue is with Hannah. Her whole posture throughout the whole thing was to go to the house of the Lord, to seek the face of God for her barrenness. And you know, I'm looking around the room today and I know that there are multiple areas of your lives and my life and other people's lives here tonight that there is a barrenness in your heart. But sometimes the Lord will allow a barrenness in you or a season of barrenness to usher in a move of God. And you need to know that those moments are the moments where it tests your character. It tests your faith. It pushes in for a place of deeper worship and deeper affection. And I want to suggest to you today that I can see two things in this passage of Scripture. I can see a a posture of religion and there's a posture of revival. And that's what I want to talk to you tonight about. There's a posture of religion and a posture of revival. Now, how do we get there? Let's go back. I told you about Eli and his two sons. They were two priests. I told you about the fact that Eli thought she was drunk because that was what he was used to in that space. Used to seeing. And see, the thing is, Eli was a man of God in the house of God with two sons serving as priests, setting this up. 
Hannah and Elkna were a family who traveled to come into the house of God to be where his presence was, to seek his face for an issue they had in barrenness. Can I say this? I believe that God is done with a barren people and a barren church. Barren in the posture of revival is what I'm referring to. Barren in the posture of the presence of God in your life. I believe that God is done and He's calling His people to a place of absolute intimacy with Him. See, there's a key to breaking out of barrenness and it's prayer. And I'm going to tell you this, it's personal way before it's corporate. It's personal way before it's corporate. And if you look back, like Pastor Corey's been sharing throughout the history of Christianity, the prayer to every revival, prayer has been a key to every revival being ushered in. And I believe that he's calling his people back to that place. Second Chronicles chapter 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. My question to you today is, where is your urgency for prayer? Where is your urgency for His presence? See, it's possible to grow up in the house of God and become so familiar with it that it comes like routine. And it's possible to live far away from it and have such a hunger and longing and desire for it, you usher your whole family to be there and not miss a moment. I believe that God is done with a barren church, a barren people, and He wants to usher in revival, but it's going to depend on His people. And it's going to depend on their posture. The Word says, humble yourselves and pray. It's not humble the unbeliever, it's humble you and I. And this is what I see. I see the posture of revival. For Hannah and Elkna, the posture was this. They went to the right place. They went to the temple of God in verse 7. They came, they gathered, and they had a heart of worship. They went to the right person. Their pursuit was of God. They didn't go to Eli the priest and say, could you pray for me? Could you lay hands on me? Could you, could you give me an impartation of something? They went to God. They went to the house of God to meet with God and to pray and to intercede and to seek His face. Not only did they go to the right person, but they had the right prayer. It says that she poured out her soul before God. And her posture was that she spoke from the heart. She spoke from her humility. She spoke not with an arrogance in any way, form or shape. Even when Eli questioned her, her response was pure and it was humble. And what I see that this actually brings out, this posture of revival that I'm talking about, the heart of worship, the pursuit of God, the cry of a heart, the posture of humility, what I see in this that it brings out the promise. See, she asked God for a son and she got what she asked for. She got what she asked for and it changed everything. And it affected the generations. I'm going to unpack this later, but the things that you are asking for, when you come before God, you need to understand that there is a promise. When When Eli leaned over to her and said, go in peace, the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to Him. See, the thing is, she got a promise from God, but she had peace and she had a persistence 
to wait it out, a persistence in faith. See, if you notice, it actually says in that part of the scripture in verse 17, it goes on 18, it says, let your servant find favour in your eyes. And the woman went her way, ate and her face was no longer sad. She rose early the next morning, worshipped before the Lord and went back to the house of Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife. The Lord remembered her and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and his name was Samuel. The beauty of this is when we have a posture of revival, it brings a promise and it brings peace. It brings promise and it brings peace. And what I'm going to do to you with you tonight is I'm going to show you the effects that this had on her life, but then I'm going to unpack what it looks like in the posture of religion. See, in her, it looked like this. Her persona was no longer sad. In verse 18, it says that she ate and she was no longer sad. It changed her whole demeanor. Let me tell you this. One encounter with God can change everything. Changes everything. It changed her praise because she came in and she came in the next day at verse 19 with a genuine worship. She rocked up. She still wasn't pregnant. She still hadn't had a child, but she rocked up with a posture of revival, a posture of going after God and believing that which He has promised, He'll look after. But until then, He is worthy of all of my praise and I will worship Him. And God is looking for a generation that would take the posture of revival, that would not be content to sit in the posture of religion, but to take the posture of revival. Yeah. And not only that, but it changes her plan. She goes home and she doesn't let the woman who was stealing the, the, the nature of her husband and the benefits of her husband, she doesn't let that get in the way. She goes home and she actions the plan with Elkna. Yeah. And then it says that in due time, she received that which she'd been promised. Yeah. Can I say this? Her perception was about due time. She had patience in the promise maker. She had patience in the promise maker. She wasn't looking to anyone else to make that come to pass. She had patience in the promise maker. So in the posture of revival, we have someone who is completely surrendered to God. Their pursuit is for the heart of worship. Their pursuit is for God. The cry of their heart is for more of Him. The posture of humility is not of arrogance, but simplicity of coming before Him. And you walk away with the promise and you walk away with peace. And see, this is a beautiful picture that Hannah and Elkanah actually had a godly home that honoured God. We can see it. You can hear it in the context of the scripture. Hannah was a woman of prayer yeah. and she taught Samuel to be a man of prayer yeah. when you go through next chapters. And the beautiful thing is about this, that he became a priest, he became a prophet at the result of her prayer and pursuit of his yeah. presence. Yeah. What are your prayers doing? Come on. See, he went on to be a faithful servant of God. He served God, he served Israel, and he actually ushered in a new era of Jewish history. At the result of her prayers. Now let me take you back to the introduction where we have Eli and the two sons, Hophni and Pinus. I have eloquence of speech. Nailed it. We have Eli, let me point it out to you. He had a religious home. 
that was actually godless. You're like, how, what, how do you pick that up from the text? Well, if you, if you read the Bible, it's really good because if you read more than one page, you get a full story. He had a religious home that was godless. Let me put it to you like this. If you flick over to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and if you've got a Bible, you can do that. Verse 12. This is strong. This is really strong language. It's almost like borderlines PG to M. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They're priests, but they're worthless. They're men of religion and worthless. They're in the house of God taking sacrifices from the people, but they're worthless. And the next verse says this, Summarizing exactly why they did not know their God. It is possible to be in the house of God weekend, weekend out and actually have a religiosity and no form with substance. They did not know God. They're in His presence They're in the temple and they did not know God. See, the thing is, the posture of religion, in the same way that the posture of of revival has characteristics, the, the posture of religion has these characteristics. First one, it's purely obligation. Verse three says that they were in the house of God accepting the sacrifices of the people. They were priests in the house of the Lord. That was their job. They accepted the sacrifices. And it was purely obligation. The second thing is this. They were completely and utterly function focused. They did what needs to be done. If you flick over to um, where we were, sorry, on verse 12, they were worthless men and they did not know the Lord. They were literally purely focused on function, they had no relationship with God. The third thing is this that I see is that they were driven by selfish gratification. How? Let's go to verse 17. Let me paint a picture of you beforehand. Their role was simply to take the sacrifices that the people would bring to the house of the Lord and they were to prepare them and actually boil them and do the fat and a whole bunch of other things and all the details. If you read your Bible, we get a full history. It's amazing. But literally they would take a fork and just take a random stab into it and go boom. And whatever came out was then given to the, to the, to the priests and the rest of it was sacrifice. And what they did is that they started to treat the offerings that people were bringing with contempt. Let's read this. It says that they started to pull it out. In verse 15, you won't see this on the screen. If you've got a Bible, you're winning. It says that they would give the meat to the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. If not, I will take it by force. 
Thus, the sin, verse 17, of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now, it's important to realize that at this point, Elkna and Hannah have brought their son Samuel, as she promised in her prayer to God, brought him back to the house of the Lord to serve. Now, just going to put it out there. She was that selfless that she prayed a prayer, God, give me a son and I'll give him back to you. Bold prayer. She did what was, she said she would do and she brought Eli back into the house of God at the age of three once she'd weaned him and brought him into the house to serve God. And this is where we see Samuel become a man of God. He becomes a man of prayer, becomes all of these things. And the beauty of this is in the contrast of both the priests, uh, Pinus and Hophni. Don't name your kids that. In the contrast, we see this in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both in stature with favour with God and also with man. We've got two complete opposite parallels happening here. We've got those who are in the pursuit of revival and the others who are in the posture, sorry, of absolute religion. It's possible to be in the house of God and be caught up in religion and not in the posture of revival. The last thing I see here is this. That a posture of religion leads to entitlement. As the priests were going and taking the offering, they were in sense of entitlement. This is ours to do what we want with it. It was not theirs, it was God's. And they treated it with contempt. They treated it like it was an entitlement for them. And it led to self-righteousness. Let me say this. In the same way that a posture of revival leads to the promise and peace or brings the promise and peace, peace, the posture of religion brings pride and penalty. It brings pride and penalty. See, the thing is, they had so much pride in their hearts, they couldn't even see it. They couldn't even see it. Like the forest for the trees, they couldn't see it. See, the thing is, if you turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 4, again, the benefits of having a Bible that can flick a page, it's helpful. The penalty was this. It was actually death. Let's flick back to chapter 3, 2, just because I can. Chapter 2, verse 31. This is a word that the Lord speaks to Eli and says, your sons are done. Your sons are done. In verse 31, he says, Behold, are coming, the days are coming where I'll cut you off. Cut off your strength. Cut off the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Drop down into verse 33. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart and all his descendants of, of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this too shall come to pass on the two of your sons, Hophni and Pinus. That shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. See, this is the thing. When you live in a spirit of religion, when you live in a posture of religion, God weeds it out and brings in the posture of revival. 
And actually what happens in chapter 4, I'm going to summarize it real quick because I just looked at the clock. Chapter 4, verse uh, 17, the moment comes where there's a battle going on between the Philistines and the Israelites. And Eli sent the people to war. He sent his sons out there. And literally it comes back with this. He says to the young man coming back from battle, how did it go, my son? He replied, he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there's also been a great defeat among them. Your two sons also, Hophni and Pinus, are dead and the ark of the Lord has been captured. Eli fell over backwards on the seat that he was on, broke his neck and died also. Drop down, you see his, his, uh, the wife of Pinus. She's actually pregnant. She gives birth to a baby. She's in such distraught. Her father-in-law's dead. Her husband's dead. She names the child Ichabod, saying that the glory of God has actually departed. It is possible to have a posture of religion and the glory of God depart. And God is no longer interested in a generation who wants to settle with their barrenness, but actually wants a generation who is willing to get into the posture of revival and step into all that God has for them and put off the flesh, take off the the sense of entitlement, take off the sense of self-gratification and actually step into a pursuit with Him. He's not interested in a spirit of religion. He's not interested in the posture of religion. He's interested in a posture of revival. I tell you this. You can tell when it's religion and you can tell when it's revival because you can see the posture difference. I don't know how you got here. I don't know where you're at in your journey with God, but I can only ask you and invite you into this space where there's an invitation. There's an invitation from God to come into the place and the posture of revival. There's a posture of worship. There's a posture of the pursuit of God. There's a posture of the cry of the heart. There's a posture of humility. There is a space in which there is an invitation from God for you tonight and in this season. But what are you actually gonna do with it? What are you actually going to do with it? Because one leads to a changing of history. One leads to death. And I don't know where you're at. Maybe church is obligation for you. You check in here because your wife's saved and you're just tagging along with her. Maybe you do it because you grew up in a Christian home or maybe you're here because you genuinely enjoy the community and you love your life group. Maybe it's obligation. Maybe it's self-gratification. Maybe it's completely and utterly function-focused. You come in and you serve and you do your thing. God, I've done my thing. Maybe you're here because it's a sense of entitlement. I don't know where you're at. But I also know that there are people in this place that are here because of their heart of worship. I know that there are people here today because... There's nothing that they want more than His presence. And I want to suggest to you today that while a Muslim man praying five days, five times a day, seven days a week appears to be religious, it's actually a posture of religion, of, of revival that God's looking at and looking for in us. Will you jump out of your car 
when your alarm's set to go off to pray in a particular time of the day and pull out your pillow and seek the face of God? Will you say no to food when you're with your workmates because you're fasting? And rather than offend them, actually just be straight up honest. Hey, look, I'm a believer and I'm in the current season of prayer and fasting. What does, it, what, does it, what does it look like for you? I believe that there is an invitation. I believe that there is something that God wants to shift in this place to move out of a spirit of religion into this place, the posture of religion into a posture of revival. And as the team come back in this moment, I honestly feel there are prophetic promises and prophetic futures and prophetic plans and promises that God actually wants. And he's done with the season where the glory has been departed. He's looking for a generation who will posture themselves for revival. I've been in ministry for 20 years. You know, the thing for me that I felt when I saw that man praying was like, I felt such conviction about my own prayer life. I felt the weight hit me. I started in ministry and spend time with God and it's changed over the seasons, it's changed over the years. And where you're at. Maybe it's five minutes, 10 minutes and God's asking you to go to 20. Maybe you're here and it's you sitting with your coffee and as quick as it takes you to drink your coffee, you're done. Or maybe it's hours in the presence of God. I just want to tell you that it gets sweeter and sweeter. It gets better and better and there's an invitation for more. He's provoking us in this season to step out of religiosity because it happens personally before it happens corporately. And there is such an invitation from God to take the posture of revival. The posture of Hannah and Elkanah. The posture that would change history to come. The posture that would usher in revival. I'm sick of it, I'm done with it, I'm tired of it. I've done 20 years in ministry and my heart has not changed. I've longed for revival for 20 years and I want to see it with my own eyes. And I can't help believe, but we are on the premises of something great, that we're on the premises of something amazing where God is about to usher in a season like we have never seen before in our lifetime. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, 
I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.